What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP, helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. China has just slipped to second in the most populous country stakes, and a demographic crisis is brewing. The working age population is shrinking, service sector and unskilled jobs are going unfilled, and there's a chokehold on immigration. And we head along to an annual rattlesnake hunt in America. Lots of them are held each year, supposedly to control snake populations. But it's not as simple as that. First up, though. In Moscow's Red Square this morning, Russian troops and dignitaries gathered to mark the defeat of Nazi Germany at the end of the Second World War. The annual Victory Day celebrations are intended to showcase Russian military strength and, of course, to provide an opportunity for President Vladimir Putin to air his twisted narrative on the war in Ukraine. Standing before rows of veterans, he said that Russia had fought back against international terrorism in Ukraine and accused the West of instigating the bloody conflict. Нашу історичну єдність, єдність усіх європейців, які знищили нацизм. On Sunday, Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, announced his country's version of Victory Day, even amid a barrage of strikes across the country. Every year, he said, Ukraine would commemorate the unity of Europeans, those who destroyed Nazism, and who would defeat what he called Russism, a mix of Russia and fascism. But when will Ukraine be able to celebrate its liberation? And what will post-war Ukraine look like? Those are questions that Shashank Joshi, our defense editor, and Arkady Ostrovsky, the presenter of our Russia podcast Next Year in Moscow, spent a week in Kiev exploring. Arkady and I have just got back. We did a 24-hour trip overland via Moldova and Odessa to get there. And we did an equally long trip over by train back through Poland. For me, this was a great opportunity to go back, but also to go with Shashank, because we've been working together since the start of the war. And this is actually the first time we went to Ukraine together. And we wanted to see how the society is changing and how the war is changing since even December when I was there last. So you both at different times have made several visits since the start of the war. What did Kiev feel like this time? 
The first time I went in was in March of 2022. That was less than a month after the start of the offensive when I went with our editor, Zeniminton Bedes, and that's when we saw President Zelensky. At that time, Kyiv was completely empty. There were air raids. There was a real sense of the war. There were tank traps. And then I tried to go every two, three months. And every time I went in, I noticed the change. And particularly in Kyiv, life starting to come back. However, on this trip, I can tell you that life is back to normal, as far as I can tell. The city is full. There is traffic jams. People are out on the streets. There is a very interesting sensation. The tank traps that we saw, they're just now piled, rusting on the corner of the street. The curfew has been pushed to 12 o'clock. The war still weighs on people's consciousness. But, Jack, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we only had two air raid sirens. Yes, but they puncture that normality, don't they? And if you're in Kiev, it's almost part of the background noise at times. I, as a relative newcomer to that city, was sat there in some interviews with Ukrainian officials, senior officials, and an air raid siren going off. And I could hear the thump of air defense interceptors. I could hear the siren, people's phones going off. And I was reasonably stressed, but everyone around me was completely unfazed because after 14 months of this, it has just been baked into the day-to-day. That's right. And all that is telling you Ukraine has survived. So we've heard a bit about the societal end, what it feels like in the city. But when you spoke with officials, what did you hear on the sort of the military and technology side? Well, I think, first of all, there's this astonishing energy and innovation on the military side from the bottom up. Every other person you meet is building a drone, designing a drone, showing you a picture of blueprints for a drone on their phone. And, you know, in terms of the software that they're building for their army to use, it's just incredibly versatile, effective. I met with foreign technology companies who are helping put AI capabilities on Ukrainian weapon systems that just don't exist at scale in any serious European army. European generals are looking at some of this enviously. But having said that, to zoom out and ask the general's eye view of this, yes, as Arkady says, a counteroffensive is looming. We don't know precisely where. We don't know exactly when. We know it's coming. Of course, they hope they can burst through Russian lines, cut the Russian land bridge to Crimea, take back lots of territory. But there is a pragmatism about the fact that they have moderate forces. The Russians are arrayed in these multiple defensive lines. So I don't think anyone expects wonders. I think they're quite realistic. I'm not going to say gloomy, but I will say they're cautious. They're not getting ahead of themselves. I agree. And I think what Shashank describes in terms of their energy and innovation is the result of the changes that were occurring in Ukraine prior to this war, which is why Putin attacked it. It's the civil societies, the network nation, the sense of nationhood, the sense of your sovereignty, by which I mean the sense of agency that you on the ground can make a difference. If you're an engineer, if you're an IT specialist, if you're a journalist, if you're an accountant, you have agency and you're fighting for your country. And that, I think, sensibility has informed the way that innovation is going. It's society-driven. On the other hand, it's the war that is changing the nature of that society. What surprises me in all of this is hearing all of this resolve, if not optimism. Is there no sign that people are growing weary of this? They've been flat out for all of this time. 
I think they are somewhat weary. Of course, the Ukrainian side's militarily been saving up its energy. So the people fighting in Bakhmut in the east have been suffering enormous casualties, really difficult fight. But that's partly because some of the best troops have been held back, waiting for this offensive. Beyond that, we certainly heard a sense in some places that, yes, there is a sense of fatigue around the war. There's concern over perhaps mobilization, perhaps a little bit of resentment about the uneven impact of mobilization. But ultimately, they've got resolve. There's no sense of, I think, defeatism. Having said that, there is possibly a sense of pragmatism around the kinds of deals that may need to be struck later on. Publicly, politicians and some leaders are saying, our aim is clear, 1991 borders, restoring Ukraine's full territorial integrity. But, I mean, Arkady, would you say that we perhaps heard some voices as well that were thinking through what kind of talks might have to occur in six months or a year or later on? Yes. On the one hand, there are a lot of people who are worried that the expectations have been set too high. On the other hand, I'm sympathetic somewhat to Zelensky and his military commanders setting those standards because if you're fighting the war of independence, which is what it is for Ukraine, you're not going to say, before you go into battle, we will settle for something less. You can't tell people, oh, we will negotiate. And I don't think, by the way, there will be any negotiation directly between Russia and Ukraine. Whatever negotiation is going to happen, I think is going to happen between Ukraine and the UN, the Security Council, the United States and Europe. And then there will be separate negotiations between Russia and a third party as well. And one thing I've just got to add is a view we heard in Kiev, but I've also heard reinforced from very knowledgeable officials in the West as well, which is that even if there is a pause to this war, a ceasefire, it's a temporary one, that the Russian state, they feel, will be back, whether that's in three years or five years, it will still want to subjugate Ukraine as long as Vladimir Putin remains in charge of Russia. So whoever it is that may end up at the negotiating table when it comes time for talks, however all that plays out, Ukraine can't do it alone, right, in military terms. How much of a sense did you get when you were in Kiev of the feeling about Western support, the confidence it would continue? They're ramping up arms production, very ambitious plans. They are building their own drones. They are producing more ammunition. But they understand they're going to be dependent for the foreseeable future on Western support. I think they are worried about war fatigue in Europe. I think they are worried looking ahead about the impact of the US elections in 2024, particularly a return of Donald Trump or like-minded populists who may be anti-Ukraine. But to circle back to the offensive, I think they realize all of these dynamics depend on how the next couple of months go. And they feel success breeds success. They say, look, you didn't give us a harpoon anti-ship missiles until we sunk the Moscova warship with our own missiles. You didn't give us HIMARS until we showed we could use your artillery without being, as one minister put it to us, like a monkey with a hand grenade. You know, we had to prove ourselves. And so I think they understand their fate in some ways is in their own hands, that if they perform well and they meet or exceed expectations in this offensive, they can change the dynamic in Europe and the US. They can build and fuel and induce more support for themselves. Success breeds success. So nothing is set in stone from their perspective. What is it that Ukrainians want? What kind of post-war order is being shaped here? So what Ukrainians are talking about is something they call Ukraine 2.0. It's a Ukraine where the state is not simply a vehicle for 
seeking and redistributing rent, where the economy is not controlled by a bunch of oligarchs. It's Ukraine where corruption is an ailment rather than the system itself. And I think there is now an interesting alliance between the civil society, which has been pushing all this stuff, and the army. When the officials we talked to talk about uh, Ukraine 2.0, they also talk about having to build inclusive institutions, which is something that Ukraine never had. But of course, they're not wearing rose-tinted glasses. They know what they're up against. And there is a danger of what happens when a huge number of men are demobilized and returning to a ruined economy. That creates room for populism. So the fight, in a way, I feel is going to shift from the battlefield into politics and into society because Ukraine has to win for that vision of emancipation. At the same time, whether Ukraine can have peace and security will depend on what happens in Russia and whether Russia can actually extract itself from that post-imperial syndrome, which is what led to this war. This is what we've been talking to our guests in next year in Moscow. Only when that change occurs can Ukraine feel secure. Shishank Arkady, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. Thank you very much for having us. What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP Software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP Software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP, helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com. For decades, China's strict one-child policy was intended to put the brakes on a rocketing population. It worked a little too well. Eventually, the country's leaders were forced to make some drastic changes. China is actually urging parents to have three children to counter an aging population and a shrinking workforce. That baby-making call may have come too late to ensure a stable labor market. In other countries, one solution to that would be to let immigrants fill the gaps. In China, though, that's not really an option. For hundreds of years, China's had the distinction of having more people than any other country. Rosie Blau writes about China for The Economist. But China lost that title as the world's most populous nation because India overtook it. And it's not just that, it's facing serious demographic issues which could have a big impact on its economy going forward. Okay, so let's talk through them. What are the the demographic issues you mentioned? So this is part of a long-term trend. China's working age population has been shrinking for a decade because basically women have been having so many fewer babies. In addition to that, the country is aging rapidly. So that's likely not only to hinder economic growth, but it's also going to create a huge burden of care. And China did not get rich before it got old. So it's got a particular problem of that. Now, many countries have dealt with the same kind of demographic conundrum by encouraging 
immigration. They rely on people from other parts of the world to do the jobs that the locals don't want to do or they're too lowly paid to bother with. But the thing that's amazing about China, 1.4 billion people and there are only 1 million immigrants. So that's about 0.1% of the population. America, by contrast, is 15%, Germany 19%. Australia, 30%. North Korea even has 0.2%. So North Korea, isolated North Korea, where no one goes in and out, has a higher share of its population, immigrants, than China does. And why is it that China is so outstanding in that regard? So the amazing thing I think about China is it's got no interest in becoming a melting pot. Now, one big reason for that, when we think about the modern era, is the only thing probably that you and I knew about China when we were growing up is the one-child policy. So for decades and decades, all anyone was told was, have one child, we've got too many people, do it for the nation. And it caused a huge scarring of the Chinese population. So how can you turn around to them, you know, three minutes after you've abolished it and say, oh, by the way, we need more people now, let's have some immigrants. So you can see that there's a huge tension. And that's a societal tension. It's a problem in politics too. But there are longer routes as well to why China doesn't want to be a melting pot. One of them is that it's been bullied by foreigners in the past. Take the 19th century, the Opium Wars. Basically, the West forced China to open up when it didn't want to. And it's got this perception of like, you know, foreigners make us do things we don't want to do. Why should we do it? There's also a really interesting thing going on that we don't think about much, which is that there's a sense in which you can only be Chinese if you are an ethnic Han Chinese. There's a sense of sort of racial purity. So the Han make up over 90% of the Chinese population. And there's this myth in China that, you know, for thousands of years, we've been one bloodline, we've been one people. These are the kinds of racial comments that we would not be allowed and we would hope not to hear elsewhere. But in China, it's just a kind of given. If you don't look Chinese, you can't be Chinese. And so people talk about blood, they talk about being descendants of the dragon. They talk about the Chinese family, which includes all 10 million of the so-called Chinese diaspora, the people who are Han Chinese, but not the rest of the world. As small as it is, though, the the number of immigrants is still above zero. What, What do they look like, as it were? So most people who do manage to get a work visa are coming for highly skilled jobs. It's a super bureaucratic, pain-in-the-neck system, but you can get a work visa for China if you're highly skilled. The migrants in China are experts. They are not manual laborers. They are not service people. So they are not the sort of jobs that we're now seeing a scarcity of in China. And one of the things that's interesting about the green card, the so-called green card system in China, is that unlike in the US, this is not a path to citizenship. So China has 1.4 billion people. The number of naturalized citizens, in other words, the number of people who become Chinese, the the total number at the moment is 16,500. That's like an ant in the population of China. America naturalizes 800,000 every year. Even Japan, we think about Japan as closed, no new Japanese, not at all. They naturalize 7,000 new citizens every year. So you said it was the the manual jobs, the the service industry jobs that that are still lacking. I mean, what does that look like on the ground? So it's interesting because China has done such a good job of 
very rapidly increasing its higher education, that it now has actually too many graduates for the graduate jobs that there are around. But at the same time, there are areas where there are great shortages. And in January, the Chinese government released a list of 100 occupations that they needed jobs for, had a lack of staff, salespeople, cleaner, automation. They were kind of factory jobs. They were service jobs. And that is where we're already seeing shortages. And we're going to see many, many more shortages in the future. It's not just that there's a lack of staff to do those jobs. It's also that where previously China relied on rural migrants coming to cities to do those jobs, that flow isn't happening as much either. So clearly there are already gaps and demographically speaking, those gaps will widen. Do you think eventually that'll be enough to make Chinese attitudes change about immigration? In the future, they may have to because whatever shortages we're seeing now are going to be exacerbated by this fast aging population. So the shortage of manual workers is going to get greater fast. Also, they will need to innovate. When we think about companies elsewhere, Google, LinkedIn, Tesla, they were all co-founded by immigrants to America. So China is relying on its own people to innovate and not having as much input from outside. So they may find that they need to. But right now, weirdly, the main path to Chinese citizenship seems to be sporting prowess. China is not known for its brilliance at sport. And they had a moment in 2019 where about a dozen footballers were naturalized. They had no ancestral ties to China, but China really wanted to get to the World Cup because football is Xi Jinping's favorite sport. But, you know, for most people, the path of a premiership footballer is not going to be how they're going to get into any country. So it may be that in the future, China has to change at least some of its short-term guest worker schemes. Rosie, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much. For more on how China sees itself internally and on the world stage, check out our sister show, Drum Tower. This week's episode looks at a state-backed film about the country's air force. China's answer to Top Gun. Drum Tower is out later today and every Tuesday, wherever fine podcasts are sold and traded. Why don't you just start by telling me your name? Shane Naylor. And so what are you doing here today? We're going to be doing a little bit of rattlesnake hunting. This is Shane Naylor. Every spring, he leads people into the countryside of Oklahoma to hunt for rattlesnakes. Everybody hear me? Yeah, you good? Most of y'all have snake hunted. Some of y'all are new faces. First person to bring me a snake is 25 bucks. So y'all have fun. (laughs) The hunt is part of the Mangum Rattlesnake Derby, held every year since 1966 on the last weekend in April. Marguerite Howell is an executive producer for The Economist's podcast team. Only 2,800 people live in Mangum, but over the weekend of the Rattlesnake Derby, organizers say some 30,000 people visit the town. There are vendors selling snake-related wares. There's a snake pit where wranglers handle live snakes. And there's also a butcher show where the snakes are killed in a gory display and a cafe where the meat is grilled up. And so have you tried the fried rattlesnake? No, I have not. (laughs) (laughs) I have. It tastes like chicken. (laughs) Some of that meat comes from the hunters out in the field. So my name's Jerry Tillman. I'm from Sulphur, Oklahoma. 
I've been going to rattlesnake roundups for a little over 30 years. I've caught a lot of rattlesnakes. I can't even count how many. It's been a lot, yeah. And he's not alone. My grandfather has been doing this for about 40 years. He brought me out here when I was six years old for the first time. Caleb Allen also leads hunts for the Mangum Roundup and has caught many a rattlesnake. And since then, I've come out here every year, and this is just a, a great activity that I do with my family and friends. Snake hunters use specific tools to catch the slithery reptiles. I have with me to catch them. These are known as tongs, and it's like a little grabber. You know, it's about 30 inches long, and you pull the grip here, and it squeezes on the end. And, uh, yeah, that's about it. And then, what, you throw it in your bucket? Yeah, some people use a gunny sack or a bag. I use a bucket. I think it's easier. Um, And then, yeah, once we get the snake, we'll open up the bucket and put it in. Hunts are held throughout the weekend during the roundup. It was a cool Saturday morning when I headed out with a few dozen people to look for snakes. Have you um, hunted in this area before? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you know where the snakes are hiding out? If I did, I'd have a bag full. (laughs) One of the key skills is to know where to look for them. As cold-blooded creatures, snakes are very temperature-sensitive. The weather matters a lot. So, like, what are you looking for right now when you're trying to find a snake? What's your tactic here? Really in the rocks and stuff, but it's just a little cool yet. But I'm trying to get around to where the sun is hitting a little better angle. When it gets cold, they'll get under a rock or hide in someplace. So it's best to hunt them on warmer days. Of course, rattlesnakes are venomous. If you're bitten by one and it goes untreated, it can be deadly. But only around five people a year die from snake bites in America, thanks to anti-venom. Still, when heading out into their territory, it's important to be prepared, as Caleb told me. So we wear uh, snake boots. They go up almost to my knee, and they have a protective layer that a rattlesnake fang cannot go through, or any snake fang for that matter. And most of the rattlesnake hunters I spoke with had not been bitten. I've had some close calls putting them in a bucket or something like that. But as long as you're paying attention and doing it the way you should do, you're probably not going to get bitten. But it's partly that sense of danger that the people I spoke to seem to enjoy. What do you like about uh, hunting rattlesnakes? The adrenaline rush is what I like about the hunting the most. It's cheaper than skydiving. The first organized roundup took place in Okeen, Oklahoma in 1939, when ranch owners and farmers banded together to stop the snakes from harming cattle and people. It's a reason that is still given today for holding the events. The biggest benefit is to help the ranchers, because if they bite the cows, then it can actually kill the cattle. Does that happen a lot, that cattle get bit by snakes? A lot of times they do, yeah. You know, the cattle are just out there eating grass, and they'll step on a snake, and then it's bit. Yeah. Yeah. After the competition in Okeen, the Roundup spread to other states, such as Georgia, Alabama, and Louisiana, with the biggest one being held in Sweetwater, Texas. The Sweetwater Roundup in particular has drawn ire for the way many of the snakes are killed. Hunters use petrol to chase the reptiles out of their dens. Such gassing can be harmful to other wildlife, including some endangered species, and to groundwater. Efforts to ban the practice failed. But that's not the only aspects of the roundups that upset people. 
I'm Emily Taylor. I'm a professor of biological sciences at Cal Poly. Emily's main concern about the Roundups is how the snakes are treated. A lot of misconceptions and falsehoods are spread about rattlesnakes at these events, and they certainly promote the torture and killing of these sentient beings. They are actually incredible animals. They live for up to 60 years in the wild. They have families and friends. The babies are born live to the mothers, and the moms take care of them for a couple weeks after birth. Just really amazing animals. And then these snakes are all put into a big pit, and they live in horrible conditions. They're terrified, and they end up getting their heads cut off in front of live crowds and are skinned, oftentimes while they're still alive. Emily is not against hunting rattlesnakes in general, but she'd like to see the roundups and the hunts be regulated. While states like Oklahoma have a rattlesnake hunting season and require a permit, others do not. And her preference would be that the roundups like the one in Mangum become no-kill events, as has happened in other states. Because trust me, all of us have tons of snakes that we can bring and do really great programming, talking about the wonders of these animals instead of just this mass torture and slaughter that we see right now. In Georgia, the last of three rattlesnake roundups transformed into a wildlife festival last year, partially driven by the decline of the eastern diamond rattlesnake in the area. But in Oklahoma, the western diamond rattlesnake is more prolific, and people like Caleb see things differently. A lot of people have this idea that these rattlesnake roundups are just horrible, and people like animal protection hates the idea of us coming out here and, and they think, kill rattlesnakes. Well, there's a lot more to that. I mean, this rattlesnake roundup in particular was actually started because the city of Mangum had a rattlesnake problem. And here, we're at a church camp. So kids come out here and run around, and who wants their kids running around in a field full of rattlesnakes? So there's a little bit more to it than let's just go and kill all the rattlesnakes. And Caleb points out that they make use of the rattlesnakes. At the end of the day, these snakes that go to the butcher shop and are here on display, those are being shown for a weekend and then being turned into food. And I'd say that's honestly a lot more friendly than a lot of the meat industry. Back at the hunt, only one person caught a rattlesnake that morning, which wasn't quite warm enough for the cold-blooded reptiles. He was underneath the rock in the grass. I stepped back and looked around. He was right there underneath my feet. Got lucky, didn't step on him. And so now you're keen to go do more rattlesnake hunting? Definitely, for sure. We're hooked on it now. And he's not the only one. Rattlesnakes are an alluring prize, not just for the hunters, but also for the crowds that line up to see them at the roundups. Rattlesnakes and most of your vipers, they all get live birds. While activists and hunters may not see eye to eye about what to do with a rattlesnake, one thing all sides can agree upon is that they are compelling creatures worthy of attention and respect. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. But dive in with the deal we've got going on. A free 30-day digital subscription. Just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer or click the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
GEP AI-powered digital transformation. GEP is the global leader in AI-powered procurement and supply chain transformation, helping companies achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness with strategy, managed services, and AI-powered low-code software platform, GEP Quantum. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide count on GEP to transform their procurement and supply chain operations and achieve amazing results. GEP.com